The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City, a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Since the moratorium on the death penalty was lifted by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976, Tennessee has executed 11 people. Five of those men have been executed within the last 13 months. As those numbers suggest, Tennessee hasn't always regularly carried out the death penalty, despite having 55 men and one woman on death row. What changed? Why now? How does the state government kill one of its citizens? And what is it like to watch that process play out? Stephen Hale writes for the alternative weekly Nashville Scene and has been a witness to three of those executions. So we invited Stephen on the permanent record to talk to us about the answers to some of those questions. This episode's a little longer than normal, but we thought it was all too good to cut. We hope you do too. Thanks for joining us, Stephen, on the permanent record. Appreciate you uh, you making time for us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, what gives you, if you have any special qualifications to cover to cover executions or criminal justice? Why why do you cover these issues? Um. Well, it's not a. It's. Uh, I don't have. I don't know if I would say there's special qualifications, but um, I certainly have a deep interest in it and it's something I've been interested in for a long time and, uh, you know, feel strongly about and have followed as far as the execution specifically, you know, uh, I have been covering criminal justice issues and a little bit of the death penalty, some of the death penalty cases, uh, Billy Ray Eirich was, there were some executions scheduled five years ago and, I was scheduled to witness Billy Ray Eirich's execution. So in preparation for that, started digging a little into his case and then all those executions got delayed. And that brought us to to this current spate of of executions. Um, So that's how I got started covering the death penalty uh, specifically was just once the state kind of started making noises about reviving executions, started digging into some of the cases and some of the issues around uh, lethal injection and things like that. Yeah, and and I want to get to some of that um, lethal injections injections in particular. But um, you know, you have witnessed three executions in, in a little more than a year, mm-hmm. maybe even less than a year. Well, let's tell tell us why there are wit- media witnesses to state executions. Yeah, I mean, the main reason is that they do these executions essentially in private. I mean, they take place in a small execution chamber in the middle of a maximum security prison. Um, so, you know, a lot of times I hear people say, oh, they ought to do these things publicly. I, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with that in a sense, but I, I agree with the sentiment that I think is sometimes behind it, which is we shouldn't do this stuff in secret. The state, if the state's going to kill a prisoner, then we should, the public should be able to know what goes down and how that happens. So, you know, at a just very basic level, the reason there are media witnesses is so that people can know what happens. 
and so that they don't have to trust the prison itself to tell them what happens. Um, and I think that's important in any case, but it's become, it has another layer of importance with the, the debate and the legal fights that have gone on about uh, execution methods because they, you know, when you're using, say, a specific cocktail of three drugs to kill a prisoner, um, you know, a lot of our job in there as witnesses is to record how the prisoner is reacting, if they're reacting at all, what their body's doing, you know, all those sorts of things. And that information becomes very important um, in terms of assessing kind of what effect these drugs have on people. Of course, we can't know all the effects it has uh, just from watching, but that's, that's one reason that's become important. Um, from a little bit more of a personal perspective, it's, I think it's really important because I think the public uh, that, you know, regardless of how you individuals feel about the death penalty, these executions are being carried out in our name. I mean, it's, Clearly, the state is putting this person to death, um, and it's being done in our name and with our taxpayer dollars. And I think we we owe it to ourselves and to the person the, being executed, and to their victims, and to everyone involved to just look it squarely in the face and confront what what it really means, and not not talk about it or think about it in abstractions. And so you know, for better or worse, that means someone has to go witness these things. And that's why it's been important for me to go. Yeah. Um, the times that I have is so that I can try to provide that. Yeah. And I want to maybe dig a little into that, that whole public square issue. And I, and I haven't thought much about it, but um, as a journalist, I mean, is there a balancing act between, you know, your, your mandate as a, as a member of the media to tell us what you saw, uh, but also your, you know, and your editor, I guess, as well, and everyone at the, the media organization that you work for, uh, you know, has an obligation to provide coverage that is not overly grisly, that is not overly macabre, you know, that people would click on just because they thought they might, you know, hear some very detailed description. And yet, if it were in the public square, or if these things were, you know, recorded, video recorded, and we could see what happens... I mean, we would see everything, and that would obviously be widely shared mm-hmm. and available for everyone to see. But yet, it, you do you have a balance? Do you have a, a duty to, to I guess, measure your reporting in any way? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think that, and this is something that comes up. Obviously, the circumstances are different in these different issues, but this is something that has come up in terms of come up recently in terms of the, you know, you, I'm sure you're aware of some of the photographs that have become national news, whether it's of people trying to cross the border and dying or of war or things like this. And there's a constant debate in the media about, about this question. Um, and whether it's, you know, it's a lot of people feel like it's really important to put all this stuff out there because people have to confront what these things really are. And then there there's another sort of counterpoint, which is to your, what you're saying, which is that, you know, in our current media environment, these things get passed around and you don't, you can't control the context in which people see them. And so that becomes tricky. I mean, as far as me, when I'm writing stories about an execution I witnessed, 
um, one piece of advice that a, another journalist gave me who had witnessed a couple that I really took to heart was he said, don't spare the reader. Um, and by that, you know, he didn't mean be sensational for the sake of being sensational, but don't, if you see something, don't leave it out because you think it might, you know, ruin someone's evening. Um, and I, 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 that meant a lot to me. And I've tried to remember that, that when I'm writing these things, I want the heart of it to be trying to put you in the seat that I was in and let you see what I saw and not go out of my way to just, you know, gross you out for, it's not a, it's not yeah. a slasher horror film. You know, I'm not just trying to be, but, but it, but it is pretty horrifying. And so I, I also do want people to experience that. I mean, my main goal, something I, 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 and I know my other colleagues of witnesses try to do is obviously stick as precisely as we can to what we saw. And so, you know, obviously it's just, that depends on, on the, the experience and what it was like. Um, you don't want to make it more dramatic or, mm-hmm. or less dramatic than it was, but I definitely don't try to back off of any details because I think they're too grim because in these, in this case, I just think that that would be a disservice to the reader and it would be a disservice to my experience. I mean, you know, I don't mean this bitterly because I chose to, to go witness these executions, but there's also part of me that does feel like, you know, if I go watch this thing, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to leave right. the, the, the hardest part of it out to spare the reader who wasn't there. I mean, the, the only, when my family asks me, why are you going to go witness another execution? The only legitimate defense of it I have is that I have an obligation to try to report on this so that readers know what it's like. And so I'm not going to then turn around and, and kind of pare it down, you know? Sure. So I try not to be unsensational for the sake of sensationalism, but I do try to be pretty clear eyed about what I saw and try to articulate that as, clearly and bluntly and, and sort of directly as possible. Sure. And hopefully your colleagues have the same. What's that process for getting to, you know, that chair, you said that seat you wanted to, you know, for the reader to right. feel like they were sitting in that seat. So how far in advance are you notified? I mean, what is the process of, of getting like, uh, into 30, that room? And I want to say it's like 30 days mm-hmm. um, it, before. Is it a lottery? Is it an open call? Yeah, they send out the, the department of corrections sends out, a uh, a notice, you know, this execution is scheduled to take place, um, and it's basically just inviting media outlets to submit themselves for um, a lottery, basically, um, and they, you know, out of however many people volunteer or put their names out there, uh, submit an application to be a witness. They draw names, and there are seven witnesses and two alternates um so yeah so you you just kind of volunteer and then you see what happens right and was the first um, is the first time you ever went into a maximum security facility to witness an execution i'm sorry say it again i missed the first part is is the first time you ever went into a maximum security prison was it to witness an execution or had you been uh, before yes yeah i'm thinking yeah i believe i believe that's right so so tell tell us what that's like. Which I had not it? ever I had never thought of it that way, but yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, because I've I've been into some facilities. I, I don't know if I've been into uh-huh. maximum security, but I mean, the process is is interesting and it's sort of a mystery in and of itself. Was there something about going into that facility for the first time that that was sort of surprising or or shocking that you remember? Yeah, a couple of things. One is just the the mundane parts of the sort of entrance and going through security and all that. Um, and I say mundane, I mean, it's not like there's never a point where you don't realize you're in a prison, but there's also a part in the beginning when you first walk in and you, you take off your shoes, your belt, it's a bit like being at a small airport, you mm-hmm. know? And so that was strange. I mean, the thing that I always tell people about that first night, the first execution that was weird. And this was, was not just about it being a prison, but it was related to the fact that there was an execution. Obviously it was, they, they had freshly painted the, I guess you'd call it the lobby. <laughs> um, and I mean, to the point that all of us who were reporters there, we were all remarking on it. Like it was thick with the smell of fresh paint. And so it was just this feeling of like, they've wow, kind they've of spruced the place up, everything up yeah. because there's going to be a lot of people here tonight. Wow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that stuff was strange and particularly strange because it's so incongruent with why you're there. You know, it's like all this sort of normal stuff and oh, let's go through the scanner and all this. And then, you know, there are these like kind of nice sayings on the wall and uh, pictures of, you know, all the exciting opportunities you can pursue in your career as a corrections professional. And then meanwhile, you're there for an execution. I mean, but the other thing that, that really struck me just in terms of going to a prison for the first time, um, there's a point, there's a point after you go through security at Riverbend where you have to go through these two, before you're back to where all the units are, you, you, you have to go through these two large chain link fence gates that are topped with barbed wire. And so at one point you're in between these and the doors always shut behind you before you go through the next one. Right. And that is a point that really like your stomach kind of sinks because, and uh, for me, that was when it really occurred to me how alienating and how isolated it must feel to be incarcerated because even knowing that I was going to be allowed to leave after that uh, later in the night, standing there in the middle of that prison, there's this overwhelming sense of like, I'm in a prison and I can't, I, I feel separated from yeah. the world, you know, um, hearing gates close behind you, hearing doors slam shut, you know, all that stuff is, is really, was really affecting. Now, granted yeah. that was my first time there. So maybe I was hyper aware of that stuff, but it really, that really did stand out. And is the room where you're eventually seated, is it, is it makeshift or is it designed for this, this observation purpose? And is yeah, it separate from the, um, from the family, from the victim's families? Yeah, we're separate. The, the media witnesses are separate from the victim's family. Um, in this most recent execution, um, Stephen West's execution, a relative of his was in the viewing gallery, I guess you'd call it, with us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a, a, a sort of viewing witness gallery. I mean, you're seated in these chairs. There's like you know, four rows of chairs and there's this large window in front of you that looks into the execution chamber and, uh, which is this really brightly lit execution chamber. And there's a microphone hanging down in the middle of it so that you can hear, you know, what goes on, what people say and things like that. And, 
and there's a speaker in the room you're in so that it brings that into you. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I've, I've often thought about the people who had to build this place, you know, and that, right. that they must've known, you know, looking at blueprints and then building this thing out that this is what this was and this is what this was for. Yeah. Is it the same, uh, room chamber for the, uh, lethal injection and the electric chair? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you've witnessed both types. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I witnessed one lethal injection and two electrocution. And are there notable differences other than the obvious? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the main thing that stands out is in a lethal injection. Um, I mean, it's longer. And so it just, it's a longer process altogether. And I think, you know, that's a big part of why some of these guys have chosen the electric chair um, is the, the hope they have that it will be, you know, that it's quicker and that it'll be less painful. Um, with a lethal injection, you, the, the person's laying on a gurney and you can see their face. And uh, to me, that was a big difference, you know, right. in an electrocution you see their face while they're getting the chair all set up and while they're saying their last words, but then they put a basically like a shroud over the person's face and, you know, don't get me wrong. That's, I mean, that's it, one weird thing about that is that that's basically just for the benefit of the people watching. Right. I mean, there's no, right. there's no other reason to do that other than to spare you the sight of someone's face while they're being electrocuted, which all things considered, I don't have an, urge to see that but it does make a difference just watching you know it's there's a dehumanizing effect in a way it's like there's something about seeing a person's face that makes you feel more i don't know connected to the experience or that you're that you're seeing a person and so that stood out to me um in terms of the difference between the two Sorry to interrupt, but um, that, and that sort of goes against, and I think this is where you're headed or, or, or what you're talking about, but that sort of goes against this evolution of the death penalty where we've come from, you know, the guillotine, which in, in, the, in the public square, to this mm -hmm. thing where, you know, in, in a perfect world um, or in a, in a perfect execution, it, which sounds awful to say, you know, it looks like a person falls asleep. And so we've come this far into the 21st century where now we're trying to make it appear as if someone just drifts off to sleep. Um, and, and then we've had this weird moment in Tennessee where they are able to choose, and as you say, are choosing the electric chair. And I'm so I had a, had a question that you've already kind of gotten into about um, about this uh, this attempt by society to you know further evolve the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And I wonder um, I wonder how that registers with you as a as a journalist reporting on this. Yeah, I mean, to me, having witnessed it now, I just think it's it's a farce. I mean, you, I don't I don't think you can watch someone, you know, no matter how they do it, they can't, there's no method of execution that is going to take away your knowledge that you're watching someone who is otherwise physically healthy and would not be dying killed that you're watching them, you know, put to death on it in purpose. And I think, I mean, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I, I have a strong sense that it was my own experience and I feel like it's, got to be close to a universal thing that most people just there's something about that that you know it goes against your instinct it's it's watching it and knowing that's what hap is happening is it, you know it, it it's it's horrifying in a way and so you know 
Yeah, so my experience of the lethal injection was not like, oh, wow, you know, this really doesn't look like an execution. I mean, it looked like a mad science experiment. There's a guy strapped down to a gurney, and there's these drugs going in them, and there's these men standing in the room. And, I mean, it, you know, it, it does not look like some kind of benign procedure. Um, now, granted, you know, it, it, I'm sure it's more so than a beheading. So I guess on a relative scale... There's that, but it, you know, my, yeah, my reaction, cause I, I definitely think you're right that that's what society seems to have tried to do is this evolving decency idea that, you know, we can find ways to do this in a better and better way. But I just don't think that you can remove the, there's this, there's this barbaric element at the center of it, which is that you're killing someone that you don't have to kill. It, it's right. not, it's not self-defense or something. This isn't like a, you know, you're strapping them down and killing them. And I think no matter how you do it, I don't think you can get away from that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little more specifically about, about Tennessee and, and the lethal injection protocol. Um, and, and can mm-hmm. you, can you give us an, an update on where Tennessee is? Obviously, um, I think the lawsuit has not stopped the last lethal injection. Where, where is Tennessee on that and how are they acquiring drugs? What drugs are they using? What are the differences? I mean, just, you know, in a, from a layperson's perspective can you make that clear yeah. to us yeah so before <clears throat> excuse me before billy ray irick's execution last august which was the first of this kind of new wave of executions there was a lethal and there's a trial um and before a judge here in nashville over the lethal injection protocol and again to your point i'm speaking as in lay terms it was basically do these drugs constitute uh, torture? You know, is this cruel and unusual punishment to use these drugs on a person to kill them? And they, the, the, the lawyers representing the death row inmates, there were 33 death row inmates who sued the state over this. And their lawyers pointed to other states where similar drugs have been used. And we've had, uh, there are a lot of Orwellian kind of terms in the death penalty universe. One of them is botched execution. Um, and there have been a number of these botched executions involving lethal injections, botched meaning the person died, but it took belt a lot longer, or there was some kind of horrific, um, they, they weren't unconscious when they were supposed to be or something like that. And so that was the sort of at the center of that legal fight. And the, the, the three drugs that Tennessee uses are midazolam, uh, vecuronium bromide, and potassium chloride. And midazolam is a sedative. So the idea being that we'll give you the sedative and the next two drugs will kill you, but you won't feel them or at least a lot. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, the second drug is a paralytic the third drug uh, stops your heart. And so the, the argument at the center of the lawsuit was uh, largely over midazolam and whether midazolam is sufficient to keep you from feeling the second two drugs. The attorneys representing the death row inmates were arguing, and they had a lot of leading anesthesiologists testifying on their side that it's not. Um, one of the country's top anesthesiologists testified in this case, and he said that in his practice, he, he 
and his other fellow doctors used to call midazolam um, a martini in a um, syringe. Wow. So basically they would give people midazolam not even not as a anesthetic for a surgery, but they would give it to you like in the waiting room, like this will help you kind of calm down because you're nervous about a surgery. And so his argument was, if you give someone midazolam and then you give them vecuronium and bromide, they are going to feel it as they're being paralyzed. And then they're going to be paralyzed and they will still feel the third drug, which he said will, will feel like being burned alive, right. but they won't be able to react because they'll be paralyzed. So they will be tortured to death, but you won't really be able to tell because we've paralyzed them. That was yeah. their argument. The state's argument was a little bit, they argued with the science, but honestly, they didn't argue with it much about what the drugs do. Their argument was largely, um, you are not entitled to a pain-free death. And, you know, in order for this to be torture, you kind of have, we're, we're not going out of our way to torture you these are the drugs we're going to use. It won't be pain-free, but you're not constitutionally entitled to a pain-free death. And um, most crucially, they argued that the inmates had not proven that there was a readily available alternative drug yeah. to kill them with, yeah. which um, under a previous Supreme Court case, that was the precedent that was set that uh, in order to invalidate the current protocol you basically had to come up with another one yeah because what we're working with here is that is that we have sorry but, well well i was just going to say that that you know because what we're ultimately working with here is that the death penalty is legal in tennessee and so we're we when we start there um and you know the state has this legal right to execute someone um it's it's a very difficult from a legal perspective it's a very very difficult yes. burden to overcome <laughs> And I hear, I hear that Absolutely. as you describe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that the attorney general's office argued in that trial was they said, to your point, the death penalty has been ruled constitutional. And as long as the death penalty is, done, is constitutional, there has to be a constitutional way to do it. You can't say, and I mean, it's hard to argue at that point. You can't say that this is legal to execute someone, but there's no legal way to do it, you know? So, exactly. yeah, they ultimately won that trial and that, I mean, it, it was challenged on up the line, but that was essentially the thing that made way for these executions to go ahead. As you pointed out earlier, some inmates, um, if you were sentenced to death before 1999, you have the choice between the electric chair and lethal injection. And that's because the electric chair was the state's official method of execution until that point. So that's why some of these men have chosen the electric chair, but there's, it, it doesn't look like, um, you know, a, right now it, it's hard to see a court stopping the the lethal injection protocol as it is. Right. Um, just to add one more thing, you asked about kind of where the drugs come from. One big issue around the death penalty is that there's not a whole lot of transparency about a lot of it. And it, they, the state keeps the origins of these drugs secret. So, um, so that, you know, they don't, they don't have to tell you, um, there are, there are states where reporters have been able to, to expose that information. Um, you know, there are people who know it, but as far as like, if you make a records request for it, they don't have to tell you. So. Right. Right. And before we leave this topic, um, which we again could do an entire episode on, uh, 
Yeah. And getting ready to, to ask you some questions. After Donnie Johnson's execution, one of the reporters, um, Janice Broach, actually from Memphis, um, talked about having witnessed that was her second lethal injection e- execution. And, and But the first one had been, a, 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 I think, a decade earlier. And she talked about how they were, I think the quote was very different. Um, obviously, you can't speak to that personally, but um, have you heard that before? Has your reporting uncovered differences in the lethal injection um, uh, method as, as, a wit- as a witness? Yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, Tennessee, they're, Tennessee um, at one point had a one-drug protocol. Now it has a three-drug protocol. Um, you know, there, so there are different ways that um, states have done this. So in that sense, a lethal injection can vary depending on what drug or how many drugs they use. Um, so that's the that's main thing that comes to mind. Um you know, that was a big, a big feature of the leave on direction I saw was that fact that there were three separate points. There was a, you know, there was the first drug and then there was a consciousness check, which is designed to, and there's been a lot of legal arguments about the, whether this is suitable, but the consciousness check is designed to make sure that the person is unconscious. Um, and then they proceed with the next two drugs. So that obviously had a big impact on what it was like for for the lethal injection that I witnessed. But if there was only one drug, I imagine it would have been quite different. Yeah. I want to um, running out of time, but I want to close out by talking a little bit about how, how we, how a single execution can be stopped in Tennessee. And specifically um, I've seen some reporting from you and others about, you know, Bill Lee, uh, and of course, as a just mm-hmm. as a Tennessean, you know, having a new governor and then having our, our first execution scheduled under him, wondering, you know, how it would go, play out. And I think it was your reporting uh, that um, it featured Rudy Kalis. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. I can't remember which uh, which person it was, which execution, but he had been a, a close uh, Rudy Kalis for for the Memphis audience and, and maybe outside of Memphis audience is a a longtime uh, sports. Um, uh, anchor in in nashville from from even when i was a kid growing up there i remember rudy Kalis from from years and years and years Mm -hmm. ago and he through uh an organization called men of valor i think had uh become pretty close with one of the men that we recently executed men of valor of course is is an organization where governor lee has has sat on the board and so i wonder if you just talk us through kind of the bill lee's arrival on the scene as governor and and the irony if if that's the correct word Uh, was that your story Mm -hmm. yeah it was yeah so so Rudy, yeah, we worked for Channel 4 here in Nashville, and after leaving the station, he got got real involved with Men of Valor, and he met Stephen West, who was the most recent execution, um, and got to know him really well, and met with the governor, and kind of, you know, made the case for the governor to grant him clemency, which the governor, of course, didn't do. Um, the you know, Bill Lee, there were in, in the community of people who are close to death row and close to death row prisoners and, and advocates on this issue. There was some optimism when Bill Lee was elected because he had spoken so much about his faith. He is a Christian and he had spoken a lot about that. And he'd spoken a lot about his participation in prison ministry through Men of Valor and being a part of rehabilitating folks who were incarcerated and he talked a lot about criminal justice reform. And so there was a feeling um, for some people that, you know, he, he may, he may have a different view of this. Um, 
you know, and you can see why. I mean, if you, the, just the sort of logic of, if you think that someone who was sentenced to 25 years for a crime can can rehabilitate themselves and then come out and be a, you know, a, a positive member of society, then presumably you, you might believe the same thing about someone on death row, right? Presumably. Um, and so that's why there was a lot of optimism in that community about, about him. In the end, he, he's now signed off on two executions. And so that, that had a real, I mean, I was, I, I didn't witness Don Johnson's execution, which was the first one under Bill Lee, but I was out outside the prison with a lot of the folks who were holding a vigil and, you know, they were very, I mean, you know, any execution is very, they're, they're out there grieving after any execution because mm-hmm. a lot of them know these men. Mm-hmm. But after that one in particular, there was a sort of despair that I think was indicative of the fact that people hoped it might be different under Bill Lee. And, um, and it, it hasn't been, you know, for people who don't, aren't familiar or don't understand. I mean, clemency is one of the most, if not the most expansive, uh, unbridled powers that a executive has. I mean, Bill Lee can commute sentences. He can pardon people. He can, um, stop executions, um, essentially unilaterally. I mean, before any one of these executions, he can call it off. He can say, we're just going to commute the sentence to life in prison. This, this person won't get out, but they won't be executed. Um, governors have done that before. It's been a long time. I mean, Tennessee governors have, have done that. Um, but recently they have not. Um, right. So, right. so yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic here too, is that both Bill Lee and Bill Haslam have kind of taken the view that it's not their place to, you know, in Bill Lee's words, he said, I, I, I wouldn't be one to substitute my judgment for the judgment of the system or of the jury in the case. And on one hand, you can kind of see that, but, you know, it, it in, a, in a literal sense, it is his place. He has this power and he can use it that way. And there are also a number of cases where the actual jurors from these men's cases themselves say that they would vote differently if they knew different information or they, you know, and that's happened in a couple of these Tennessee cases where members of the original jury have come out and said, you know, I voted for the death penalty at the time, but I don't stand by that anymore or say that I've learned things about this case since that I didn't know then. And uh, I feel differently now. I mean, that's certainly not a universal opinion of the jurors, but it's been some of them. And so, so yeah, the, the governors, I think, probably largely for political reasons, have been very hesitant to use that power, but they do have it. Yeah, and not to inject my opinion, which is not not much of a secret on this too, but I mean, it's a, the Constitution gives the governor that power for that exact reason, because we are, you know, doing something that is, you know, undoable. You know, we can't reverse this. <laughs> Un- mm-hmm. yeah, and, um, and in fact, just to throw a little more out there, this is more than we can talk about right now, but, you know, Sedley Alley, who was executed in 2006, is... Um, potentially the first um, person to be exonerated after his execution. And that, that is a Tennessee case. Mm-hmm. It is uh, uh, another reason that uh, clemency and, and pardons are, are powers that, that governors are given under constitutional governments like we have in Tennessee. Um, but I guess I want to end with the, that was just a little aside there. Um, no, but it's a, it's a really great point. I mean, it's just to underscore it's an, it is possible. 
and certainly his lawyers believe it's the case that Tennessee has executed an innocent right, person right. in the very recent past. Right. And, and so, I mean, that's a sobering thing to consider. And that is a very big piece of, of data, if you will, just to, to clean it up some, to include in this conversation, which is, a you know, what, no matter mm-hmm. which side of this uh, issue you, you fall on, I think you, you need that information. If we can figure that out, mm-hmm. I think that adds a great deal to this conversation. Um, Absolutely. But I, what I want to end by, you know, talking just, you know, you're Stephen Hale, you're on the podcast. You've, you just described this as a pretty horrifying experience earlier. And I wonder, will you, will you witness another execution? How, what has this done to you personally, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing that? And, um, and are there limits to, to the number of times you can sit in a room and, and watch this and write about it? Yeah, no, I, I'm comfortable sharing it. Um, it's a little complicated. I mean, I, the, uh, the, the answer to your first question is I I'm not going to witness another one for for a while um, for a number of reasons um, but there is there's definitely at least personally you know I can't speak for other people there have been reporters in states who have witnessed a great many of these particularly in Texas there was a reporter who witnessed a some insane number um, you know so I'm not and trying to comment on anyone else's sort of what the right response is. I just know for me, there, there has been an effect. Um, and it's been sort of, um, one that has multiplied with each one. Um, and so after this last one, you know, I just, I, for myself and I have, um, uh, I'm married. I have two, young children. And again, just speaking personally, I, I was, I, I have to make sure that I'm not bringing this home too much. And so I had to, I have to, you know, there are different ways to cover these cases and I'm going to keep doing that. Um, but as far as, as far as how it's affected me, I mean, it's just, a. I guess the way I know to put it is that and I don't know if this will resonate with other people and how they kind of experience life. But for me, you know, a lot of life is walking around with a sort of short video clips or photos in your head, you know, images, um, memories, you know, a lot of them are really lovely. Um, and, but, and you can't always control when those come up, you know, um, sometimes I'm sitting at my desk and I remember the first time that my little girl walked. Um, now for me, one of the things in that sort of like, you know, uh, slideshow is these executions. And, you know, there are times when those images are in my mind or come up or things remind me of them. Um, before an electrocution, there is this exhaust fan that kicks on, which is a pretty grim detail in and of itself. Um, but just, basically right before they turn the chair on this exhaust fan comes on, it's kind of low hum. And I mean, I think of that now every time our AC kicks on in my house, it's the same kind of sound, you know, like outside where you hear the yeah. the, van, the fan kick on, you know? And so, uh, and, and it's really important to me to say, I'm, I'm not, you know, no one needs to pity me. I'm not trying to make myself a victim of it. It's, but it, but I, it's like a weird thing because I also do think it's important to talk about, if only so that again, people realize like, this is a, this isn't a small thing that, that is happening and that, that state employees are being asked to carry out, you know? Um, so 
So yeah, it, it definitely has stuck with me. I mean, I will say though that the other thing about it, and this isn't so much about witnessing the executions, but covering these death penalty cases is that it's forced me to um, reflect on my own, I guess, privilege or my own luck, um, my own, how fortunate I've been in certain ways. And because when you read through these men's cases, almost universally, I mean, I'll, Mm -hmm. I'll let you know if I come upon one that isn't this way, but there is always, it's extreme poverty. It's extreme child abuse. It's severe mental illness, or sometimes all of those three in their childhood. And, you know, it doesn't excuse or diminish their crime and certainly doesn't bring back the victims. And, you know, they have those families now have their own PTSD that I'm sure they live with from that. But it does add context and does make you think, does make you realize that when we when we go on believing that we're putting the worst of the worst on death row, that that's not entirely true. You know, we're also putting the poorest of the poor or the illest of the ill or, you know, the most abused. And these are people who were victimized before they victimized other people. And so that has been I don't it's not that it's a positive, but it has it has expanded my perception and my view of how our country works and and my own life if that makes sense yeah wow um well thank you steven so much for for sharing all this with us it was uh you know as you and i talked about before we started a conversation that we could have for hours and hours and and we have gone a little Mm -hmm. long but i think it's been uh it's been really great stuff i'm i'm upset that it's uh, that it's so so dark and deep because I know you you like college football you have a lot of other interests that are much more fun to talk <laughs> about true. and um, and but I appreciate you sharing this with us because I do think it is important and uh, and I, you do too and you, and you share uh, these experiences well uh, in your writing and so thanks for joining us and spending a little time talking about this thanks so much for having me I really appreciate you uh, thinking it's important too that was Stephen Hale staff writer for the Nashville scene. Follow Stephen on Twitter at I am Stephen Hale. That's Stephen with a B. So you don't miss one of his stories. He's a great journalist and a wonderful human being and one of the rare people that can show that on Twitter. So check him out. Thanks to Stephen for making time for us. As always, thanks to Gil and Carla Worth and the OAM Network for hosting us and for their first class podcast support. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. They've got a lot of shows. Check some of them out. Special thanks, as always, to Jeff Hewlett for our theme song, She Got Gone. That song and a lot of other Jeff Hewlett originals are available now on Jeff's newest album, Around These Parts. Find it on Spotify or wherever you get your music. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a rating. It helps us build our audience. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. We updated the website not too long ago. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.